Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. My name is Brandon, teaching pastor here. And if you've never, if that video didn't make sense to you, then that just means you haven't sold anything online before. So that's all. Um, we are uh, continuing a series called Wandering in Darkness. It's week four of a series that's been a series looking at suffering and from a bunch of different angles and uh, specifically through the lives and the stories of four biblical like narratives or characters in the Bible that show up. Um, instead of like, uh, here's suffering, here's, you know, three S's on why suffering sucks and all that kind of stuff. Um, we just said, there's people who engage in a form of suffering. Let's look at their story. Let's, let's kind of implicit, uh, take some, some material from there and see what we can do with it. Uh, and so, uh, we looked at, for three weeks, we looked at the, at the person of Job. So we just, if you missed this part of the series, you missed one person, but three weeks on, on him. And his part was critical because he represented the innocent sufferer, right? Which is the, the key piece of suffering that we're constantly worried about and going, why could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people and innocent people? And, and we feel like we're innocent people all the time and we are struggling. We have got our own battles that are going on. And so any good take on suffering would, would deal with something like that. Why, do you, why, why, are, why are things, why are sicknesses happening? Why is this? Why is tragedy? Why are, why are the fires there? Why is Hurricane Hillary coming up? All this kind of like... If God is so great and powerful, then what do you do with this? So uh, that's why that kind of took a majority of our time. We're going to shift a little bit now. We're going to look at uh, the story. We're going to go from Job into a guy named Samson. Um, and Samson's story reflects for us the type of suffering or the perspective of suffering from somebody who, in our opinion, reaps what he sows, right? And you know this, you've seen this, you've had you know kids or grandkids or, or friends and family members who are going through some suffering and they think in their scenario, why me? I'm an innocent bystander. And you're looking a little bit like with an eyebrow up going, innocent? I mean, you know, consequences to some decisions, poor decision making, poor this. You know, you're trying to give them grace, but you've given them enough grace to kind of change some things. And so so that, that's the kind of perspective on it. We're, we're moving towards this idea of how, what do we do with a suffering that is I guess semi-deserved a little bit. We've all been there. We can cast blame. We can do this, but we've all kind of, we've experienced some things in our life where we go, yes, it sucks that I'm, I'm going through this and it, it's not great. Um, but, uh, you know, if I want to point at somebody to blame, I only have to go to the mirror to kind of be able to figure this thing out. Uh, the thing about Samson is his story is almost presented as like this moral horror story of wasted potential of things that could be good and then but turned out incredibly wrong uh and it's like this picture of you know you want to you have you know how there's like this strategy of pointing kids towards the progress of meth here's what it starts out with and then here's what it could be and don't don't you don't want to end up here that's kind of how stories are this or this story specifically is presented this guy had incredible potential and then wasted all uh in in several succession things over a long period of time uh and it goes into vast details about all of this and if life is all about the cards that you're dealt. His story is legendary for how not to play your hand. That's basically the story. 
uh, of Samson. If you didn't grow up with this story, um, we're going to walk through some pieces of it. If you are familiar with this story, I'm going to hit some of the, the major pieces. We're going to go verse by verse and then, and then talk about a little bit. That's the perspective we're coming at. So that's, and when you hear stories told by these types of people, and what I mean by these types of people is massive potential, wasted talent, and at the end of life or at the end of a scenario, I could have done so much more, and yet uh, I, I, I didn't, and here I am, and there's no time machine in life, and I can't go back, and that relationship's ruined, and that marriage will never work itself out again, and I only get one chance to raise my kids. Um, and so there's lots of regret, and there's lots of, there's lots of pain, and there's lots of suffering, and, and this kind of a loss uh, of will uh, can be among the worst cases of, of, of human suffering, to find people who had everything stacked for them, not against them, for them, and it was just wasted. And then, you know, what do you, what do, you do with the emotional anguish that comes along with that? So the, the story uh, of Samson picks up in the book of Judges. It's in the Old Testament. It's in a period where everybody else had kings, but God raised up judges to kind of run things uh, for the nation of Israel. They're trying to make sense of what it means to be a people group. They were tribal in their exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land. And then they split up and they had like this non-centralized government sort of thing. And they all kind of did their own thing. And then as a result of that, there'd be infighting and family wars and all just kind of crazy stuff. And then God would raise up somebody and be like, all right, for a few moments, we're going to clear things together, make things work. And some of the judges were good and some of them were terrible at their job. And this is an example of one of the ones that was terrible at their job. Verse one of chapter 13 says this, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, right? So this is going to be a thing. They're going to, they're going to do good for a bit and then they're going to go back and then they're going to not do great. And this is this is uh, human nature. Like that, you'd be like, that's me. That's, I, I do that. I'm good for a little bit. And then I do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the, me too, by the way. Not, I'm not judging you. <laughs> so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. The, this is the common, this is the um, uh, always the, uh, the enemy that shows up. This is the common one that's like, oh, the Philistines, right? Like for us, when we were in like the rocky seasons, it was like the Russians, right? You're just like, um, that's, that's how it worked. This would be the Philistines, right? 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites uh, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. That's a, that's a big thing. This is a biblical image. This is gonna show up a lot in scripture. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is gonna be barren and unable to have kids. And then all of a sudden, what happens? An angel appears. And all of a sudden, we know that this is triggering for us. God is entering the story in some way. Something's about to happen, right? Buckle up. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you're barren and childless, but you're gonna become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, right? This is the Surgeon General's warning early on. This is how we got, this is where we got the Surgeon General. No, I'm just kidding. That's not how we got it. <laughs> uh, but this is, this is where it's at. Don't, and then don't eat anything unclean, all right? You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. Uh, a Nazarite vow would have been something that's like an above and beyond thing. They would not shave their head. They would not drink wine in a, in a culture that everybody drank wine. Uh, and Jesus would turn water into wine for a party and then just keep the party going. I mean, that's like the, the scenario. To not drink wine in that culture would have been like to be, uh, to be a teetotaler in that sort of scenario would be like standoutish. What's wrong with you? What's different about you? I'm choosing to set myself aside for this. And it would have been a lifelong thing for them. Uh, and he will, and this is the big part, he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. 
In other words, from an early age, he's been set apart, sanctified, uh, put in a position to have a holy vocation or a holy calling. The reason for his existence, the reason for his talents and abilities, the reason for why he's here and who he should be about is to help liberate the Israelites from the hands of the Philistines who are always fighting. They're just, we're always at war with each other. They weren't over, they weren't like Rome where they're like running things, but it was always, we're always geared up for battle. We're always fighting over territories and boundaries in this way. And then after verse 13, it begins to go into his upbringing, some of his stories of his life and what he did. And he kills a lion and he has this riddle and he marries this woman. Uh, and then there's, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to like, uh, he, marries, uh, he marries a Philistine, which is kind of out of bounds, right? Uh, and then surprise, surprise, things go wrong. And, and all of a sudden, then he's mad at everybody else and he begins to kill people. And uh, then his wife is given to a, a, one of his groomsmen in marriage because the dad was like, I thought you were like not into her. You were off killing people. It's a crazy story. Guys, like I'm telling you, it would make a great movie if, like, you know, Steve Soderbergh is interested. Like, we can work through some stuff uh, in this way. Um, and, and, and his exploits and his escapades are not exemplary intentionally. It wasn't like, and God saw and was pleased, right? This guy ties up foxtails together, lights them on fire, and sends them in a city to destroy a city. Um, and, and, and it's clear he has anger issues and has a power complex and has got some things going on and is not living up to his potential of what he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. Eventually, he shows up at what's called the Battle of Lehi. And there the story says um, he, he is so angry and so mad, he grabs the jawbone of a donkey or, you know, your, your version of it, and then begins to kill people. Uh, he says, single-handedly slaughters a thousand of the enemy with the jawbone of a donkey. Because why not? Because it was handy, because it was around. I mean, this is the, the stuff of legends in this way, right? And afterwards, I don't know if you've killed a thousand people with a jawbone of a donkey, but you know what? It makes you thirsty. You are exhausted and dehydrated. So here's what he says in verse 18. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. And when Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. Listen to this prayer. This is going to show up. He's going to pray two prayers, basically. And there's going to be like vast differences between these two prayers. What's this first prayer, right? Look what, you've, look what I've done for you. Must I now die? Are you not entertained? I mean, this is what's going on here, right? Must I die of thirst? I do all these things for you. And by the way, no worshipful address, no revering of God's name, no prefacing with God, you are so great and powerful and you live in the skies and all this kind of stuff. I mean, contrast that prayer with the prayer of somebody like Daniel. In Daniel chapter nine, verse four, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Or the invocation prayer of Hezekiah, Lord Almighty God of Israel and throne between the cherubim, these angels, you alone are God over all of the kingdom of earth. You've made heaven and earth. Even you and I preface our prayers with more care than Samson does in this moment. Even if you're not really religious and all of a sudden the cop lights are behind you and you do these bottle rocket prayers, you're like, oh God, help me get out of this, right? And you say, you say in those moments, like, oh God, you're awesome and, uh, you know, thank you for creating everything in me and everything and if you could just get me out of this jam, that would be a really, really good deal. You preface your prayers. You have, you have more respect and more honor than even Samson in this moment, right? There's no plea for God's help, really. 
Um, not even a single please. It's as if his attitude, is this how you treat someone who's just done your work for you? Because in his opinion, God needs him to be Israel's champion against the Philistines. God needs me in these moments. And when Samson engages in various feats of strength, as is going to show up about six uh, times, five or six times, depending on kind of how you read this, there's going to be like these great massive feet of strength that Samson kind of does. The story often, but not always, says that the spirit of the Lord came on him or rushed into him, that the breath of God or the spirit of God, or in, you know, in the New Testament, that would be translated as the Holy Spirit, rushed into him. Until the end, when not only did the Lord's spirit not come on Samson, but in fact, the Lord departed from Samson. So over and over, we're going to see these feats of strength where they're inspired seemingly, uh, oftentimes, but not always, by the spirit of the Lord rushing in on him until the end. Which leads us to the question, what would it be like to find that the God who had only to see your need to satisfy it? I'm thirsty. What are you going to do about that? Water's going to come out of a rock and you know, fix things, right? Who rushed into you and made you triumphant was now gone from you. What if you lived a long life, a long period of your life where God's blessing on you was clear that the feats of strength or the things that you were able to do were like unexplainable in human terms? What if everything about your needs were met? What if, what if God was so clearly a part of your life for all of your youth and all of your you know, young adulthood and into your first job and your first marriage and all of the things. And everything was like, from a divine perspective, going great. And then all of a sudden, that was pulled from you so clearly. To have something and to have lost it is perhaps far worse than to never have known what it was like to have it in the first place, right? I mean, that's a common refrain for us. But let's get to the, like, the meat of the story of Samson. This is the story that, you know, if you grew up in church and like flannel graphs and stories, and even, even in our kids' rooms, there's a, a version of this, not quite the R-rated version that I'm going to talk about today, but we sanitize it. You, you're welcome. You're, you know, that's like our gift to you. The most famous part of Samson's story shows up in chapter 16. And here's where it says this. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her, because she's Philistine in nature, because he just is enamored with them. I'm at war with them, but God, their women are pretty, right? That's how he's essentially operating. The rulers went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver, which we assume is a lot. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength. And how you can be tied up and subdued, which is like an awkward, like, I don't know, pillow talk? I mean, that's so weird. Listen, man, guys, single guys, real quick, you're dating somebody? If there's some pillow talk about, is there any way that you could be like thrown in jail for something? Or what could we do to like really hurt you, right? Like maybe get off match for a little bit, like figure something else out. That's not the one, man. Right? Okay. All right. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. He's clearly lying to her. 
because he knows. I mean, yeah, he's not an idiot. Like we think of him sometimes as, oh, he's only thinking with part of his body in this moment. And he's not. He's thinking fully orbed. He's just, he's looking at this going, um, I know what you're trying to do. Uh, so I'm going to lie to you. And, and, and she buys the lie. She, she, whatever. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried. And she tied him uh, with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Uh, and then the insinuation is that those guys got the crap beat out of them and they're not there anymore, right? And they're like, not yeah, it's reset. We're going to try this again. That, verse 10 says, then Delilah said to Samson, you've made a fool of me and you lied to me. I mean, if this is the first time you've ever heard this story, you've got to be like, is he, the, is he as dumb as a rock? Like, what is happening here? This cannot be real life, right? You've made a fool of me. You're, you're in the wrong. I tried to kill you, and you lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. Samson replied, verse 11, away from me, woman, you cannot be trusted. Just kidding. That's not at all what he says. That's what he should have said. In a common writing and reading of a story, that's what you would expect. And again, men, if you're listening to me, that's what you should say. That's not what he says. Verse 11, he said, if anybody ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other. And he, again, yes, he's lying, right? But why is he even entertaining the game? Why even play the game with this? This, by the way, is going to go on three times with the exact same result. Phil, you know, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He wakes up and goes, rah, <laughs> beats him up. And they're like, they're getting tired of it. They're like, are you lying to us, Delilah? No, she's like, no, he's lying to me. And then she goes back to him. Hey, you lied to me. And I'm so hurt and I'm so offended. And my emotions are in an awkward state. And I'm suffering severe trauma from your lying to me. And he's like, I'm experiencing some trauma too. You keep waking me up with Philistines in our room. <laughs> three times this goes on. Three times he breaks free. No big deal. And why is he so tame with regard to Delilah after he sees her betrayal? I mean, there has to be more of a reason than he's just obtuse and just a moron and just doesn't get it. And he's slow. I mean, you could go that route, but that's really like an unfair, easy, too simple of a reading for this, Right. I mean, for us, we go fool me once, you know, shame on me, whatever. Shame on you, fool me twice. That's my fault. I got to get on that. Shame me three, four times. Like, what, what are you doing? He clearly knows she can't be trusted, which is why he keeps lying to her. He, he knows she can't be trusted. He lies to her. I'm going to choose to lie to her. Why? Because he wants sexual intimacy, but zero trust. He's sexually intimate, but zero trust, which is a way of doing life, not a great way of doing life, Right? To be fair, he's been burned in the past and trusting people and being vulnerable with himself hasn't worked out too well for him. So he's had relationships where perhaps he began to trust and then that was betrayed. And now he's like, you know, it's just easier for me. I've been burned too many times. I want physical intimacy. I want low trust. So he begins to lie to her. He is prepared to take her and enjoy her. He is not prepared to give any of himself actually to her which might be why he's not even angry with her when, she, when he finds out she's in league with his enemies. 
Because he's lied to her, she can't do him really any real harm. And because he hasn't invested in himself in her, he doesn't much mind when she tries to do him in. It's as if he's like, I mean, I'd probably do the same thing to her if roles were reversed. I'm doing to her what she's doing to me. And we love, we both love the intimacy, the physical intimacy without the actual emotional intimacy and with no trust. And so therefore, I can't really blame her for doing these things. And you've seen, you've seen relationships fall apart because of some of this stuff, right? There's been some hurt. I've got some baggage. I've got some things. I want to be physically, I want to be around you and with you and all this kind of stuff. And yet I don't really trust you. I don't give any piece of myself to you. And so then you do some crazy thing against me and there's an affair. There's a this thing and you're cheating on me. And you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm low invested into that. So like it sucks and you're, you're, you're a dirtbag, but like, um, I'm not like when world's not rocked because I've wisely chosen not to invest myself and not to trust you in this way. But again, it's hard to kind of develop a long-term relationship. Without trust, there is no relationship, right? So that's, that's the hard piece about this. But on the fourth and final attempt at betrayal, which you, it's hard to believe that there's a part four for this because there shouldn't have been a part two, right? <laughs> he spills some tea. He says he's been a Nazarite. He lets her in on this thing. I've been a Nazarite from the womb. And she probably knows a little bit about this history, which I don't know why you wouldn't think. He's got these long flowing locks. You might think, and that's, an, and that's a deal or whatever. And he's never, been, uh, he's never seen the barber. And he says, if someone were to shave my head, I would lose all my power, right? But why does he give in? Why does he eventually, again, a too simple reading, he's just obtuse, he's not thinking correctly. It's, um, you know, it's in, in the, he's just passionate and, and whatever. Maybe he's so wearied by her requests. I mean, that's one of the ways that the, you, know, you read that and he goes, she just kept bugging him and bugging him and poking him and prodding him. And eventually you're just like, whatever, I just, this is what it is, right? That's a possible reading for it. But surely he doesn't now find her to be trustworthy. I mean, I really don't think that that's a thing to be like, you failed me three times, but I think on the fourth time, Right? So the real question then becomes, all right, does he, does he even believe this is true? He says, if my hair is cut, I'll lose all my power. And his hair is eventually cut and he's not able to do the things that he's going to do. So there's a way of reading this to me like that's exactly what happened and, and he believed that. But I don't think he tells her that if he actually believes that. When he wakes up and Delilah is not in bed with him for the fourth time and he realizes his head has been shaved and the Philistines are waiting outside the door of her house, he doesn't walk out with his arms up in a form of surrender. He doesn't look at himself in the mirror and think, well, crap, now I'm screwed. He doesn't, he doesn't respond in any different way than he did in the first three previous circumstances. Verse 20 says, then she called out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you for the fourth time. He awoke from his sleep, and here's what he thought. I'll go out as before and shake myself free. Which means that he didn't even believe himself when he said, cut my hair, I lose my strength. Because if he believed that, he wouldn't think that. He said it, and it's going to turn out to be kind of partly true, but perhaps not for the reasons that we think it is. Because the next phrase is so critical. 
but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Listen, if his ultimate downfall was that he couldn't keep a secret and he just kept blabbering, he just blabbed it out and was just obtuse and dumb and a sucker, then the moral of the story would be like, don't blab or else God's going to punish you by blinding you with, you know, whatever and exile and imprisonment, forced labor and all the rest, which makes for really crappy kid stories in the rooms on either side of me. Guys, keep yourself a secret, right? Like that's not, it's not blabbing that got him into trouble. It's not telling this off. Then how are we to understand this last episode with Delilah? Why does God depart Samson as the story says God does? He didn't realize that the Lord had left them. And what is it that Samson is culpable for? And what does any of this have to do with my personal suffering? In the instances of strength, um, as I mentioned, there's about five or six, kind of depending on how you read them. When it comes to furthering the cause of the liberation of Israel from the hands of the Philistines, the spirit of the Lord comes on him. He's going to do several of these things. When it has to do with actually doing what he was supposed to do, the spirit of the Lord rushes into him. When it comes to his own personal vengeance or self-indulgently imprudent liaisons with women, which is gonna, there's going to be multiple of them, he acts on his own. It's still a feat of strength, but the spirit of the Lord doesn't come on him. It's almost as if like, there's, there's clear delineation between what he was supposed to do and called to do and what he's choosing to do with his talents. When he uses his talents for what it was created for, there's a blessing that comes with this. When there's not, He's still strong. He's still able to do things. And he has, he's had 20 years to fulfill his, ob, his vocation, his obligation to liberate the people. So the, the last story that comes with Delilah means like the timeline has been, he's been doing this for years. This isn't like an uh, example. This is a track record of him choosing to use his own personal abilities and strength and talents, not for what he was called to do, but for his, self, his own self-indulgent purposes. In, in the, the episode that comes, I, I, I mentioned, uh, we just read from chapter 16, verses four. In the first three verses of it, there's a story of him going, sleeping with this uh, prostitute in the gates of this Philistine city. And when he wakes up in the morning, he goes out, he rips the gates off of the wall of the city and hauls them up a big, log, uh, big hill and puts them there. Not the spirit of the Lord came upon him to do this. He just slept with a woman and then took the gates up there to kind of show to the city, I do what I want, when I want, I tear down your walls. You, it took you seven guys to build these things and it's gonna take you seven guys to haul these down from the mountain, but I'm Samson, I do what I want. That's the, that's the essence of this, right? That's his attitude on this sort of thing. He's had 20 years to get some real work done, but he's too busy falling in love with Delilah who's beautiful and has her own radio show, by the way. I don't even know if you knew that. But that, that is a, you know, I see it. All right, the great gift of strength God gave him for the liberation of his people, he is now using as a private resource. What was meant to be done for this public, do this for the people of God, has become, I have been given so much, I use it as a private resource to keep his dismal and inadequate love life going. But even that, isn't the worst. Self, this small-mindedness and self-absorption aren't even the worst part of the story. The narrative explains Samson's mistake was that he didn't know his head was shaven, uh, or wasn't that he didn't know his head was shaven, right? Um, it, it wasn't that he woke up and didn't realize and didn't know. He knew it. He didn't know that the Lord had departed from him. That was the problem. When it says he didn't know that the Lord was departed from him, it, they didn't say he woke up and 
wasn't able to look in the mirror and wasn't able to know. I, I assume, I've never had long hair, but I assume that if you have long hair, you would know when it's gone. I don't really know. I've never known, you know, what that feels like. But let's say yours is down to your elbows, or sorry, your shoulders or whatever, or elbows, that's fine too. Um, I would imagine that if it was, if, it, if you woke up and it was gone, it would take you not a second to figure that out. When he tells Delilah that cutting his hair will make him weak, he is again lying to her in the same way that he thinks he's doing when he says, tie four un, you know, unwatered uh, strings around my arms or unused ropes or whatever. At least in the sense that he's telling her as true something he believes to be false. So here's what is true. In telling Delilah about his Nazarite vow, he's revealing that it doesn't mean that much to him that it meant something to his mom and it meant something to that. And I've done this and it's been a tradition. Perhaps I've kept it going because of respect for my mom, but I don't actually value this in any way. Here with Delilah, Samson takes it for granted that since he's the champion of his people, God will have to continue to bestow the gift of strength on him. It doesn't matter much what Samson himself does or how Samson treats God. God needs me to continue to do these things. God needs me. I'm a champion of the people. Not always, oftentimes just for myself. But I've been able to do and I can do what nobody else can do. So in telling, the, in telling her this, he's revealing to her that this has been something that God said he wants from me, but it doesn't mean that much to me. Samson's strength departs from him when his hair is cut not because his strength was in his hair, but because the Lord departs from him and when Samson doesn't care that his hair is cut. He didn't care that his hair was cut, so the Lord left him in this way. And at this stage in the story, he's wholly given up caring about what God wants from him. And listen, in a rela- and this is, the, this is the worst part. This is worse than the self-indulgency. This is all that kind of stuff. Listen, in a relationship, if you no longer care about meeting what the other person wants or needs from you, if you no longer care what they need or want from you, it might feel like they're the ones who are walking away from the relationship because they are the ones that texted or they're the ones that met over coffee and said, I think it's over and I think it need to be done. But you've already left long before that. Because we would say, oh, how could God depart from this? The reality is, Samson has been walking away from this for a long time. And this is just the straw that broke. This is just the the final example of going, he tells her this story. He tells her this Nazarite vow because he just doesn't think it matters anymore. And I don't care what God needs for me and wants for me. By the end of his life, neglecting his mission and his God, hanging around Delilah, Samson seems a derelict version of what he might've been. He has played his hands, uh, played his cards so incredibly poorly. And he has nobody to blame but himself. The story goes on that he tries to break free, but this time the strength of the Lord has left him. He's not able to do so. He's captured. His eyes are plucked out. He's made to force a, a grain mill around and around. He's mocked. He's paraded before the people. They have this big giant banquet where they bring everybody in. And they're like, bring out Samson. Let us show how strong we are, how, how we have the up, the currently the upper hand on this ongoing feud between Israel and the Philistines that we are currently winning because after all, we've taken the mighty warrior, Samson. Bring him out, make him dance before us. He won't be able to see anything anyways. And the text says this then, 
in the end of chapter 16. But the hair on his head begin to grow again. Now, if I was like a true like preacher preacher, you know what I mean? <laughs> like this would be like, guys, I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've lost. But the hair on your head's starting to grow again and get you all riled up and the band's back there. Dun, 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 piano's playing and you're going, I can feel it. I feel it. I feel tingling up here. Yes, it's happening. The hair on my head begin to grow again, right? And like there's enough, there's enough peach fuzz there to be able to do something with what God wants to do for you or what, I don't know, whatever. But listen, the regrowth of Samson's hair, listen, the regrowth of his hair isn't the indicator of the strength coming back into him. The restoration of his strength requires the return of his God to him and Samson knows it. It's there, but it's not like that's when he began to feel strong. Now he's got hair again. It was never about the hair. It was about God wanting some sort of a set apartness. I want, I need something from you, Samson. I want this to be something you choose to be self-disciplined about. And as soon as you didn't give a rip about that, and as soon as you didn't care about that, and life for you became completely self-consumed, with your love life and your power complex and your anger issues, then, I, then you have walked away from me. And it feels like I've distanced myself from you. But again, in relationships, when you've lived like that, it's been you're the one that's been walking away, not God and not your ex. That's hard. Verse 28, then Samson prayed to the Lord, sovereign Lord, remember me, please God. Strengthen me just once more. I'm gonna finish that in a minute. But a couple of things. One, he doesn't say, I feel the hair on my head growing. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. What does he do? He prays. Sovereign God, remember me. What do we, what, what's different about this prayer than the first prayer? I'm thirsty. What are you gonna do about it? <laughs> nah. Sovereign God, much much more deferential, much more like what we see coming from Daniel or Hezekiah or you in your most desperate moments. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Because even in his movement back, there's still something about him. There's still brokenness in him. There's still something about him that's like, I can't let go of this. And God is up there going, man, I'm so happy that perhaps you're shifting in this direction. You do have a little bit more work that we need to work on, <laughs> right? And guys, that's gonna be true for us. That's gonna be true for you. When you've made that movement back and you, and you go back to your, your ex or the bro, you know, this is, we broke up, but I'm, I'm, I, I see now I walked away from you. You didn't walk away from me, even though you're the one that sent the letter. It's, it was me. It's me. I'd love to kind of figure this out. I think, I've, I think I've been working on myself. I think I've been doing this. Don't prepare for her to be like, you are Prince Charming. Everything has changed in you. Everything's good. No, come on. There's still going to be something about us that's like, let me get revenge one last time on those dirty, rotten, individuals that took my eyes, right? 
In the first prayer, Samson took for granted that God would give him what he wanted. In the second prayer, he petitions God in the clear understanding that the granting of the petition is up to God and God alone. If you want to do this, Lord, remember me. If, if you're willing. And again, even so, there's still some old Samson there. Samson's not asking for forgiveness or guidance, but one more parting shot. And the end of the story is that the spirit of the Lord comes in on Samson one last time and he pushes against the walls of the temple and it collapses around him, killing him and killing a bunch of Philistines in the process. Which leads us into the last question that we'll kind of ask today. Is Samson triumphant at the end of his life when he dies in the destruction of the temple or not? So is this story an example? Because in the judges, good, good judge, bad judge, good judge, bad judge. Good king, and then later on, it would be good king, bad king. Like this ebb and flow of all, this is how life works. This is how, it, whatever. So is this presented to us? And is it captured for all of time, for all Israelites to kind of look at and be like, Samson was a model individual that we should definitely pattern our lifestyle on, or not. I mean, on one hand, no. He dies as a blinded Philistine captive among his enemies, a ruined wreck of what he himself had wanted to be. I mean, where's the triumph in that? On the other side of things, the author makes it clear that more Philistines died that day than in all his battles taken together. So in a sense, he fulfills his mission and there is some sort of a glimmer of redemption in this. But was it good? I mean, I don't know, man. That's, a, that's, that's not something that's resolved. That's a, that's a tension. That's a point of discussion. That's a point of the complicated nature of making sense of my suffering that I've endured because of decisions that I've made. Has it been good for you that that happened? I mean, if you had a time machine, you'd go back and never do that again. You'd never say that or go there or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of regrets that we'd have. We'd be like, I don't know if it was worth it. But where am I at in this moving forward piece? Was, what was it that moved Samson from his corrupt and jaded state with Delilah when his mission is forgotten, his divinely given gift of strength, his serving his sexual liaisons to his turning to God at the end of his story? I mean, surely, what, what, what is the thing that changes for him? What is the thing that shifts? It's his suffering. It's his experiencing uh, blindness. It's his experiencing the sense of loss of I had all of this potential and I wasted it. And the depth and the, the gross and the, the, the nature of the will in that moment has got to be one of the most painful sort of things to go through. So surely it is his suffering. And his second prayer is made possible only because of his suffering. So then it comes to us and for you and for me, right? We go through, we make poor decisions in life. Um, we, we, uh, we know what it's like to have potential and then we walk away from it and then we are experiencing the things as a result and we grow from it and, we, and we, it makes us better as, as people. And, and we think, was that the point of suffering? Is that... Um, is that, was that good? Is suffering good in that way? I don't know. It just is. It, it, it just, I mean, it's better than the alternative, which is he just dies dancing in front of these people and, and is killed. I mean, he makes the right move in the, in, in the back end, but to be like, that's heroic and that's what we should all strive to be. Definitely not. But in that moment, God can redeem even that. And I think that's the point of it that there might be some things in our past that we're currently suffering for because of poor decisions in our past. And I wouldn't necessarily say that was God's plan for your life, right? 
uh, that that was his blueprint, and this is what he drew up, and he knew you were gonna have this and that happen, you know, whatever. I don't think so. I think that with the free will choice that we've been given, we make poor decisions, we go through it, and the message of hope, and I think the story of Samson is that there's always a pathway towards redemption to some degree, that we're all broken, that we can all move toward, that God's not, you've gone too far, and that when we feel like God's walked away from us, it's really been us. It's really been us who've walked away from him, even though it feels differently like that, and that God can redeem any broken story. And that doesn't make us perfect, and it doesn't mean that what happened to us was good, um, but it shows us that, that there is a future, that there is a hope, that there is something, that God never gives up on anything, on anything, on anything. And he can make sense of brokenness, and he can do what only he can do. If we will change our attitude from, you know, I'm thirsty, what are you, to God, if you're willing, I don't even know if you can use something as broken as me, but if you're willing, would you come upon me one more time? Would you come upon me one more time? That, I think, is another perspective of how we navigate through suffering. And we're gonna continue the conversation next week. I'd love to have you back for that. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is whether or not we're in the middle of dealing with the, uh, the, the, the shrapnel of decisions that we've made uh, or we are, we've, we've nursed those things together and life is puttering along okay, but you know we, we do live with regrets. We are thankful for God who does not give up. Uh, who redeems in spite of our, ourselves and who, who gives us in, in, a, a hope and something in which to live for and hope for. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.